Morning, guys. I think with the, the worry of the sickness and daylight savings time, kind of got a double whammy this week. But uh, having the old nostalgia just reminds me of a couple years ago, the good old days of we'd meet in Highland College and there wasn't, there was probably less than this or even in our house. Uh, so needless to say, I'm excited to preach this morning and teach what God has for us in his word this morning. Uh, in light of this passage, even, and what has been continually set before us in the news, I'd like to prime your thinking this morning by, by presenting the reality of uh, what does sickness and disease and death, what does that teach us or show us? And I think there's something about sickness that reminds us of our human frailty, isn't there? Of our weakness as humanity, something about colds and flus and viruses that reminds us we're not invincible. We are frail creatures. And it reminds us that although, even as Western Americans, we are innovative and creative, we have technology and advances in medicines, we've developed cures for many diseases and devastating diseases, we can make robotic arms and legs, we can do extremely fine and complex surgeries through mechanical arms and robots, we can cut our eyeballs with lasers to give us better vision. But barring that we live in an isolated bubble, we will get sick. It's inevitable. And we will die. And we have not only been reminded of these realities in the midst of uh, cold and flu season, but in the midst of this wake of this corona pandemic, they're calling it now. I didn't know what a pandemic was. It's, I guess, when something goes global. It's not an epidemic, it's a pandemic. So I thought that was... I never knew the difference, but now I know. And now you do too. But one of the things that has struck me as it's like every morning you open up the My News app and there's an article about Corona. I don't know if, if you're kind of just tired of it by now. Um, but it's like every morning I open the news app and there's a, an article about the coronavirus, some latest case or report about it. It's caused so much fear and confusion. That's what struck me. People are going to Costco and buying all the toilet paper and the hand sanitizer. It's new. It's out of our control. We're scared of it. And although authorities have tried to contain it, it seems like continual outbreak is inevitable. What Jesus shows us, though, in this passage is, yes, he has power over sickness and disabilities. We saw that last week. Jesus healed a sick sick boy with a fever, with just a word, 15 miles away. But what Jesus shows us in this passage is that there's actually something worse than being sick. There's something worse than being disabled for 38 years. And Jesus has healing for that as well. Jesus shows us our greatest need is not only is not just physical healing, but spiritual healing, healing between the relationship that, that we have been separated from God and humanity. And Jesus will teach us this in the story. It's, it's relevant, I think, profoundly timely for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to open it with me, take a hold of it and open to the passage our friend Carrie just read, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. This morning's passage serves as a transition, providing another story of the power and grace of Jesus, his compassion, his sovereign knowledge, his supreme power, and then it introduces us to some reasons why the Jews began persecuting Jesus. And this persecution moves from uh, wanting to kill him to, to starting to make plans to actually do that. Next week, we'll consider uh, further why the Jews would want to kill him and some of the claims that Jesus makes about himself. But this morning, we're looking at a story of Jesus healing a man at a pool. Jesus healing uh, uh, an invalid on 
the Sabbath. And I think what Jesus sets before us in this passage of principle is what we see throughout the New Testament. It's a gospel principle, especially in the letters of, of Paul, that, that there is a principle that's paramount to the Christian faith in responding to Jesus and what he calls us to do. So that's, what, that's where we're going. That's the principle that we're going to see in this passage. So let's look at verse 1. After this, so after this undetermined amount of time, Jesus had come from Samaria. He had fruitful ministry there. Then he goes to Galilee. He's in Cana. And he comes to Jerusalem. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and he went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So a multitude could refer to an indefinite large number of people, and depending how large this pool was or how many people could fit under these five roof colonnades, there could have been hundreds of people gathered here that were weak and invalid and blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been there 38 years. Now, the, the word invalid used here is, is, is a word that you could, in the Greek, is, just means disabled. He could have been paralyzed or very weak or crippled. And he could have been uh, dropped off here when he was a child. So he was paralyzed. His parents just dropped him off here. He'd been here 38 years. Or he could have, this injury could have happened later in life, and now he's been here 38 years. The, the text doesn't tell us that, but he's, what we do know is that he's been here for 38 years by this pool. When Jesus saw him there, lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I think what John is doing, us in this, in doing showing to us in this moment is he's connecting some earlier concepts to what we've seen already, that Jesus has supernatural knowledge. We saw this earlier in chapter 1, verse 48, when he saw and, and knew Nathaniel. And he says, how did you know me? I saw you under the fig tree. And then he demonstrated this, this sovereign knowledge in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. And he knew supernaturally that she had five husbands. And the man that she was with now wasn't her husband. So Jesus sees this man. He knows that he's been there a long time. He asked, he asked, do you want to be healed? And notice how the man responds. He, he doesn't say yes or no. He says in verse 7, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps before me. Now, this seems to be a very interesting response. And it, it seems so interesting that, that after the original manuscripts, later individuals actually uh, who copied the story, added a sentence to help us make sense of this. Maybe you've noticed this when we were reading through that there's no verse four. Right, it goes one, two, three, five. Where's verse four? Now, there's not an error in your Bible that somehow the publisher made a mistake and forgot to add verse four. Uh, verse four, uh, we think, was added later. It's not found in the earlier, earliest manuscripts. Therefore, it shouldn't be considered part of Scripture. So if you have a modern translation, ESV, NIV, CSB, a New American Standard, it's, it's not found in there. Verse 4 is not there. Uh, the, one of the few translations that had this is, in fact, the Old King James Version. So if you want to know what verse 4 says, we have to look at the Old King James Version. And, and this is because the Old King James uses older manuscripts. So they did the best with what they had, but over time there was recent discoveries and earlier manuscripts were found. And they realized that what now is what was verse 4 is, is really actually not part of Scripture because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. So if you're curious about verse 4, it says this in the King James Version. 
For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever then first, after troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So you can see how that makes sense now with what he says in verse 7. And, and what I think happened is, is copiers of the original manuscripts added this as a type of footnote to kind of help you understand what was going on here and what was the, maybe the religious superstition that was going on. But over time, it maybe got mistakenly added into the original story and was considered that. And even as we consider this, I don't think this should cause us to doubt the trustworthiness of Scripture. Uh, these, these, there are minor variations that we see throughout the New Testament, but of all the variations that we find, there's no effect or difference that it makes on the key doctrines or the key beliefs of the Christian faith. In fact, when you consider the reliability of the New Testament, it's kind of embarrassing how many copies we have. There's over 5,800 copies we have. And in all the variations and small differences, none of them affect the core beliefs, none of them affect the teachings about the person and work of Jesus. And when you consider how many manuscripts that is, that's amazing that there's that few differences. In comparison to other ancient texts, we have 10 times the amount of manuscripts of the New Testament compared to, for example, the very best classical author, Homer. Dan Wallace, one of the premier Christian textual critics today, said, in Greek and Latin works, the average classical author's literary remains no more than 20 copies, but we have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. It's amazing how many copies we have. So just because there's not verse 4 and it might be not considered a part of Scripture doesn't mean, oh, we should just throw out the Bible. It's, it's not trustworthy. Uh, there's just small variations. In fact, we could be confident that what we have today, for example, in the ESV, is very similar, if, if not 99.9% what the originals were. It's amazing. So with all that being said, although we shouldn't consider verse 4 a part of Scripture, it does show us that there was some sort of possible superstition that the people believed in that there was an angel who'd go into this pool, and then the first person who got into the pool after the angel stirred it up would be healed. So this guy says to Jesus, I don't have anyone to help me get into the pool after it's stirred up. Therefore, I can't be healed. That's essentially what he's saying. Yes, I want to be healed, but I don't have anyone to put me into the pool. Jesus says to him, doesn't say, doesn't wait for a response, yes or no. He just says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus doesn't wait for the man's response. He doesn't wait for, yes, I want to be healed. He doesn't wait for permission. He just tells him to get up. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And verse 9, and at once the man was healed. Immediate. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jew said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who was the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. So try to imagine this. There's a, possibly hundreds of people around this pool that are invalids, blind, paralyzed. They have uh, disabilities. And Jesus finds one, and he goes up to him and he heals him. You can imagine after, after a time, that would have been mayhem. If there was hundreds of people there, now they want to pretty much mob Jesus. Hey, you healed this guy. Let's all get him. This guy can heal us. Jesus doesn't want to attract the crowd in this way. He withdraws. And the man, he leaves before the man could even find out who it was. He, he slips out. He disappears from the crowd and he leaves. The, the man doesn't know who, who Jesus was. So this is what he says to the Jews. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, 
you are well. Sin no more. This is significant. We'll come come back to this. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Now, it's important to note that what the, that the Jews are describing here, a man taking up his bed to walk, is not explicitly prohibited in the Jewish law in the Old Testament. When you read through the Old Testament and commands that deal with the Sabbath, you won't find a command not to pick up your bedroll on the Sabbath. What had happened is over time, Jewish leaders developed more particular laws that spelled out in more detail uh, what was not allowed on the Sabbath. You might consider them later Jewish tradition. They had these traditional laws that they added to the scriptures, and, and these were Jewish traditions. They were not commands from God himself. So in the later traditions, there was a law that prohibited, it said, quote, there was a law against carrying an object from one domain into another. So that was a law. You can't carry one object from one domain to another. So when you consider that, it wasn't the fact that, the, that Jesus healed the man that he was breaking some sort of command. Right? If Jesus were to come up to him and say, be healed, and then he waited a day, and then he got up the next day and walked, no problem. There's no problem with that miracle. The problem was Jesus told him to get up, take up your bed, and he did. And that's where he broke the Sabbath. See how ridiculous that is? The Jews were placing their human traditions and their religions over what God had commanded explicitly. And, and Jesus seems to here have more of the, the letter of the law, the heart of the law, more than these religious leaders and, and Jews, they'll, they'll even love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, the, the religious leaders at the time, they, this man had been invalid for 38 years. He's healed. And the Jewish leaders don't go, wow, praise God. Good for you, brother. This man healed you. Now you can walk. That's awesome. They say, this shouldn't have happened. This is wrong. This isn't right. This is what religion and legalism does. Love for others is cold. Grace shown to others is non-existent. Now, in light of this, Jesus doesn't try to get into some sort of theological debate about, well, actually, you've, you've been reading the law the wrong way. This does not actually work. Your traditions have taken the law of God and taken it too far. Jesus doesn't justify what he does. He doesn't get into a debate about what's allowed on the Sabbath. He doesn't say, oh, sorry, guys, didn't realize it was the Sabbath. It's daylight savings. I got my, you know, my calendar's all thrown off. I, I shouldn't have done this. He actually makes a claim that would escalate the situation even more, like make them even angrier. He claims to be God. And for the Jews, working on the Sabbath, that's wrong, but claiming to be God, that's blasphemy. You see how it escalates and infuriates them in verse 17. Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jews seem to be knowing the implications and what he's saying here, and John makes this explicit for us in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus doesn't correct their thinking in this, or he knows, and this is what he's claiming. He is co-eternal with God. This is what John has told us at the very beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word word was God. The Word was with God. Jesus is God. He is the same nature, the same divine being of the Father. There's that same nature. And Jesus knows what he's doing. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's finding this man on the Sabbath. He's healing him. And then he's making this claim. Jesus is not trying to escape some sort of controversy here. He's actually trying to raise it to the next level. 
says, my father is working until now and I am working. Jesus knows what he's doing. He has a plan and he knows the conflict it will create. And we'll, we'll explore more of what Jesus is getting at here in his authority as he expounds upon it next week. But this morning, I'd like to consider what does Jesus mean in healing this man who is invalid and what can we glean from the text and the principles that we find here and how can we apply it to our life? Looking at that question, what does this text mean? So in, in light of what the text says, let's see what it means. In the context, I think, we, we think about it in the, in the scope of the gospel according to John. John is showing us what kind of triggered this controversy that we'll see in the later chapters of Jesus and the Jews. There's this further controversy that will be continually explored, and Jesus will continually challenge the Jews. It also connects back to what we saw last week, that, that in Jesus' voice, in his words, is power and life, is healing. There's healing and life found in his word. And although the invalid who is ignorant of Jesus' identity, he's ignorant of his power and, and seemingly is trusting more in some sort of superstitial practice of this pool being stirred up and him being the first one to get in it, Jesus is showing that, that superstition and this mere religion, our, our custom, has no power to transform sickness and disability. Jesus does. Jesus is supreme over anything else. And I want to show you in this passage the way that Jesus heals this man and what we can glean from what Jesus tells him to do after the healing. So in the healing, I think there's three truths that we find in this passage. Number one, Jesus initiates and chooses. Jesus initiates and chooses. Notice in the story, Jesus decides to go to Jerusalem. Jesus comes to the sheep gate. Jesus goes to a place where there is a multitude of invalids. And in the multitude, possibly hundreds of those with disabilities, Jesus chooses one man, one and he approaches him. He approaches him and speaks to him. Jesus initiates this healing. This paralyzed man doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus chooses the man to heal, and, and after the man doesn't even reply yes or no, Jesus just heals him. He initiates. He chooses. Who is the one who finds the man afterwards in the temple? Jesus. Jesus finds the man in the temple. Jesus goes and finds him. So number one, Jesus initiates and chooses. Secondly, Jesus knows. I love verse 6 when it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time. This is a glorious truth for us to kind of chew on and think about, that Jesus is all-knowing. He has supernatural understanding. He has awareness of everything. Jesus knew this man. He knew that he had been there a long time, and he moves to do something about it. Do you know, friend, that Jesus knows everything about you? Not only everything about you since he created you, but, but he knows every thought that you've had and every thought that you will have. He doesn't just know your thoughts because they come out of your mouth. He knows your thoughts, even those ones that just flash before your mind, like a half second. Jesus knows those. Jesus knows. Number two, Jesus has supernatural knowledge. And number three, Jesus heals. Now, if just the fact that if we just knew the fact that Jesus had supernatural knowledge and he was an all-knowing being, it might be a scary and despairing reality, wouldn't it? I mean, if Jesus wasn't also kind and gracious, if he wasn't compassionate and merciful, because Jesus doesn't respond to this man or to us, you, sicko. I know what goes, it's going on in your mind. I know what thoughts you've had yesterday or last night. I know what you're thinking right now. That would be crushing. Jesus, with the supreme knowledge, moves to heal. He is compassionate, and he heals with his words. He says, I have the power to heal, not man-made tradition 
or practices. Other religions, other traditions, even other medicine fall short to the supremacy and power of Jesus. That's what this passage shows us. Jesus commands this man to do something he's unable to do. It would be cruel for you or I to walk up to a man in a wheelchair and just tell him to get up. That would be insulting, wouldn't it? Jesus commands, Jesus has the power to do these things. His words bring about change. Things happen when Jesus speaks. So Jesus initiates, Jesus knows, Jesus heals. That's what we see in in verses 1 through 9. When we see these things in the way Jesus heals the man, look at what Jesus says after he's healed. Jesus comes to Jerusalem out of the multitude. He picks one man. He goes up to that one man and heals him. He comes to him and finds him in the temple. And he says in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, in this statement, I think we find two truths. Number one, from being healed, Jesus commands holiness. And secondly, there is something much worse than physical pain, discomfort, or disability. What could be worse for this man? He spent 38 years being crippled. Almost four decades of being paralyzed. I have no idea what this is like. I get sick for a week, and I'm sick of it. Just a week. What would be worse than this? I think Jesus is referencing what he says later in chapter 5 in verses 28 and 29. Starting in verse 26, actually, for the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's something worse than being a cripple for 38 years, and that is eternal judgment. I think that's what Jesus is referencing here. For us, what this means is as a church or as a Christian, that we should grieve with those who are experiencing physical pain and loss, and we should pray for God to heal those who are infected with disease and crippled with health difficulties. But ultimately, we know and believe that there is something worse than physical pain. There is something worse than cancer. There is something worse than depression, and that is being separated from God forever. We can't say we really love people if we just want them to be physically healed and not tell them about these greater realities. There is an eternal separation from the good and wise king, eternal judgment cast away from God's kind and gracious rule. There's something far worse than physical pain. It's the absence of God himself. No life, no joy, no peace, no wholeness, no flourishing, no satisfaction. An existence where food has no flavor. Beauty cannot be seen. There's no enjoyment. It's just hard to even fathom what that's like because of God's common grace all around us. So Jesus says that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. From Jesus' healing, he commands holiness, sin no more. And this, my friends, is a principle we find throughout the New Testament. That we must keep in the correct order, but must not neglect, just as Jesus commands this healed man to be holy. Jesus commands all of those who he has healed to be holy, to sin no more. Let me read for you a couple verses that, that present this reality. First Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So God's holy, God calls you to himself to be holy. First, 2 Corinthians 7.1 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 1 John 3.6, no one who keeps, abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And possibly one of the clearest connections between grace and holiness is 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So we're called to be holy and we're not made right with God because of our acts of our righteousness, our works, but from this place of being called to him, from this place of being healed and saved and accepted with God, therefore we pursue holiness. Does that make sense? See the connection here? For all those in Christ who has saved, he's not saved us because of our works. He's saved because of the grace of God, the purpose of God. But it's from this being saved that we now pursue holiness. This is God's call to holiness. We consider the ways in which we might resist this truth. The ways I've seen these truths resisted in my own heart and lives and others, I will characterize them in kind of two main truths. If you've seen what we've, if you kind of label or lump together what we've seen in this passage uh, you could label them in how Jesus heals the man, his, his initiation, his choice, his, his knowledge, his power. I'd call that grace, healed by the grace of Jesus. And, and what we saw in verse 14 afterwards, I'd label that in holiness, that necessity, that urgency as healed for holiness. So we're healed by the grace of Jesus. We're healed for holiness. Those are the kind of the two categories I want to lump those in. And I think we can resist both of those. Right, because we're not the hero, hero of the story and the Bible's not ultimately about us, not about what we can do or how great we are, I think it's good and wise for us to consider each week how we resist these truths in the, in the Bible. Identify some blind spots that we might not have even in our, in our walk or progression in the Christian life. So to answer this question, I would say based on personal experience and, and the, the life and church leadership, that we don't hold these tensions together. We resist them or resist both of them or at the same time. We resist being saved by grace, we resist it being saved for holiness. Does that make sense? Number one, resist being saved by grace. Because on the one hand, I think many of you have grown up in church. I know the stories of many of you. We've, we've grown up in church. We, maybe we were children when you had grown up. We, we know the difference between right and wrong. We were taught it. We don't really understand grace. We have a tit-for-tat mentality. When someone does something good to you, we feel obligated to do it back. And some avoid feelings like this by not even allowing themselves to be served by others. So they don't have to put themselves in a position to do something in return. It's just easier to do things on my own. I've seen this in my life and in the lives of others. Our relationships are not marked by grace. Someone does something wrong to you and you get bitter and angry. You distance yourself emotionally and treat them with an open hostility or even a passive aggressive punishment. They need to feel and understand they're wrong and I want to punish them by making them feel it. 
don't understand grace because we think in our American mind the individual free will is ultimate. I don't do anything unless I choose to do it. So the American gospel made sense to me and I chose it. I don't understand why others don't. They're kind of stupid. Why can't others be as smart and make the right choice like I did? That shows a lack of understanding of grace. We think we need to clean ourselves up before we can be made right with God. We think that we're saved by our holiness and we achieve our status and union with God. We don't receive it simply by a sheer act of grace. Secondly, I think we resist being saved for holiness. So on the other hand, I've seen others resist Jesus' commands by falling to us into a sort of easy believism. So they're not marked by grace, but they're not also marked by holiness. It doesn't really matter how you live. That's what they think. I said a Christian prayer when I was four years old. Someone repeated this prayer to me, and I said it back. I'm good to go. Therefore, the reality is what God says doesn't have to play a a day-to-day impact on my life. I can live as if nothing has really changed. I can love what I loved before. Christianity boiled down to me is really just a mere confession that has no real bearing on my practical spending habits or my dreams or my pursuits or the way that I live my life. I, I live in kind of a state of an ignorance of what Jesus saved me for, his glory and his holiness. I'm ignorant of the trajectory Jesus intends me to, to be on as people looking at it, of looking more and more like Jesus. I hear people resist this reality by saying, well, uh, to talk about discipline or pursuing holiness, that sounds legalistic. I've heard these realities. Anyone else ever heard those realities? Yeah. Right? Well, you can't talk about discipline. You can't talk about uh, accountability. You can't talk about uh, obedience, Daniel. That's getting kind of close to legalism. We have to get this order right. We're saved by grace, saved for holiness. And the mark of our understanding grace, the mark of understanding the gospel is holiness, is wanting to hate the things that Jesus saved us from and love the things that Jesus saved us to. And friends, this is why I believe we must continually remind ourselves of the gospel. This is why we must continually remind of the person and work of Jesus that we have received and in which we stand and by which we're being saved. We must keep these gospel principles on the forefront of our mind that we have been saved by grace, but we have been saved for holiness so that we don't err one way or the other. We don't get this order mixed up that I'm saved by my holiness or not saved for holiness at all. We want to come back to the cross and see where these two come together, grace and holiness. Because in the gospel, God sent his only son, Jesus, to live a holy life, a life of perfection that we could never live, to live a life of complete holiness, the life all humanity was created to live. All humanity was created to live in this way, live in accord with what God has commanded of us, live in accord with what he has laid out for us and what's good and right. It's a path of joy and peace and flourishing. And and Jesus lived the life that all humanity was created to live but couldn't live because of our sinful nature. Every one of us has, has rebelled against God. We've preferred ourselves or other things to him. And because God is so good and we are so bad, there is no hope for us being made right with God apart from a mediator apart from someone paying the penalty for our sins, taking the consequences for our actions. And God, in his love, sent Jesus to be that substitute, that lamb of God to take our sins, to remove our sin from us, to bring us back into right relationship with God so that we could be holy. We could be holy and be in God's presence. And God moved in grace and mercy to send his son for us to die the death that we should have died 
to take upon himself the sins of the world. He was the substitutionary sacrifice, and he taught us that anyone who looks to him, anyone who believes in him, who would turn from themselves and trust in his righteousness, that they would be counted righteous, that that perfection would be credited to them by faith in Christ alone. He taught that. So that you don't have to trust in him and believe in Jesus for salvation, but then once you sin, then it's all up to you again to clean yourself up. Jesus doesn't give you a clean slate and then it's all up to you now to do the right thing. You're not only cleansed, but you've given, given Jesus perfect righteousness, right? He, he takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness. We don't have to be saved all over again every time that we sin. This means for us as Christians that sin is not damning. It's just out of character. This is how the New Testament writers talk about how we're to live in light of the gospel. Since we have been clothed with Christ walk in him. In other words, since this is who you are, be who you are. Become who you are. Strive for holiness, not because you're saved by your holiness, but because you're saved to a holy God. Because he's made you holy. He's declared you righteous. And we come back to the gospel because we see that on the cross, Jesus showed and God shows us how serious and grievous and horrible sin is. Jesus had to die. So someone who sees this and realizes this doesn't want to sin anymore. They've seen the destruction of living life apart from God's good and wise decrees. They don't want to scorn the cross and treat it without contempt. They don't want to act like holiness doesn't matter. This is why I think we need to be reminded of the gospel, friends, because we're so prone to forget this. Prone to forget and, and need the reminder that all Jesus performed a miracle here. This man had been 38 years physically deformed, and now that he's healed... Jesus tells him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I can imagine if I've been sitting by a pool for 38 years waiting for someone to put me in a pool and this man just walks by, asks me if I want to be healed, tells me to get up and I get up. But yeah, whatever this guy says, man, I want to do it. I've been sitting here 38 years. I've been waiting for someone to put me in this pool. No one's done that. Jesus comes and just tells me to get up. I'm following this guy. And shouldn't that be the mentality that we have? We know our horrible condition that we had apart from God's grace and, and, and Jesus saving us. We might not have been paralyzed for 38 years, but we know we were in peril, destined for judgment forever. Yet God moved to save us. He did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. We weren't asking for it. Jesus didn't need our permission. He comes up to us and says, get up and be healed. And we're healed. We're saying, okay, Jesus, whatever you say. I know what my life, what, what I did in, in, in light of who I was when I was my own boss, how I was living in sin and how destructive that was. Jesus, I'm following you now. Don't we need to be reminded of that? And I was struck by that reality this week, listening to the, the song that we'll sing in a moment, As You Find Me. I did nothing deserving of God's grace and love. I've made a mess of my life again and again. And God loves me as he finds me, and he's too good to leave me here. He's too good to leave me here. Jesus, you knew me. When I was ignorant of your commands, you knew me, you chose me, you loved me, you healed me. Now I'm yours. I want to follow you, Jesus. This is how we progress. I think this is how we grow. We continually come back to Jesus and what he has done. We seek to obey Jesus' commands, to go and sin no more, not thinking that we will live perfectly and never sin, 
but knowing that we want to live in right response to God's mercy on us. Does that make sense? We want to live in right response to his mercy. Jesus tells a story uh, in the Gospel according to Luke of two people that owed a moneylender a certain amount. One owed a large amount and one owed a small amount. But for both of them, they couldn't pay the moneylender back. But one day, the moneylender says, your debts are forgiven. He forgives both debts, and, and, and they go away debt-free. And Jesus asked the question, who do you think loved the moneylender more? And, and the response is, the one who had more debt forgiven. In other words, who would have more appreciation for the gift? Who would be marked more by gratitude and great care for this moneylender for forgiving their debts? The one who realizes the great debt that they've been forgiven. And Jesus says this, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Friends, growing in holiness has not come by being beat in the head to be more holy, but realize how much God has done for you in Jesus and living more and more as if you actually believe it to be true. Friends, Jesus has given us a gift that we can never earn for ourselves, and we strive to grow in holiness and to be like him because we know this is what the gift of grace was given for. We don't want to treat it uh, with contempt. When we mess up and make mistakes, we believe the riches of God's kindness, his grace towards us is meant to lead us to repentance, is meant to lead us to grow in holiness. We won't, don't want to nullify the grace of God and thinking we must have to work for God to be happy in us. At the same time, we don't want to nullify God's grace and viewing it as a license for laziness, a license for a complacent or flippant attitude towards sins. We want God's grace to be shown in our life for what it truly is, transformative, does something. It's powerful. And we trust God's healing of us was a total free gift that we don't earn it. We don't good, do good things to be healed more, but we do them because we're healed. Right? It'd be kind of ridiculous if, if the man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I don't want to sin anymore so that uh, I can be healed more. Jesus was not telling him, uh, you have to do something to be healed. He's totally healed. And it's from this place of healing that he says, go sin no more. So when we're declared righteous in God's sight, we are totally healed, totally made right. So we're not working and striving for this identity or this acceptance or this healing that's been given to us. But we can live as if we show the reality of what has already happened. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter, don't, don't treat the blood of Jesus with contempt. Don't scorn the blood. Because the blood of Jesus was shed to transform you from your sins to, to live as if you haven't been cleansed. And Jesus' blood isn't transformative and you still want to live in the formal ways that you did. You're demonstrating Jesus' blood isn't that powerful. You're demonstrating God's grace isn't that powerful. This practically plays out in my life in, in, in a couple ways. Like if, if I snap at Stephanie, I need to remember that, that God has shown me so much grace and love. And in that moment, I was forgetting it. So I come to God and I say, Father, forgive me for treating your work on the cross with disdain by living as if your grace is not transformative or powerful or really affects my day-to-day -day living. Help me to see areas of unbelief in my heart. Help me to live in light of the gospel, to live by the power of grace for holiness. I was convicted this week about my lack of wisdom and wasting time and being a poor steward. Father, forgive me because I have demonstrated a false belief that I am ultimate and sovereign and entitled to do whatever I want when I want. 
Forgive me for treating your grace as if it's not powerful and transformative. Father, help my unbelief. My sin has led me to this misery, this pain, and changed me to live and help me to be as who you've made me to be in Christ. This is how we, this is how we grow. This is how we repent. This is how we pray. Friends, we don't seek to grow like Christ with some sort of innate power we have within. One of my biggest mistakes I continually make as a Christian is continually trying to live. I'm awakened out of this sin or some, someone calls out some sort of ignorance that I have in my life, and I think that I have the power in myself to change. It doesn't lead me to prayer and dependence on Christ. It's like I've been awakened out of this pride and this arrogance, and I just stay in my arrogance. We grow in holiness in response to Jesus' healing and in Jesus' healing by seeking to humble ourselves continually, depend more and more deeply and fully upon Jesus. And we work from this healing, knowing that each step that we take is because of Christ. Each step that we take because of godliness, we do so because of God's grace and power within us, because of the Holy Spirit that is transforming us. We know and confess and remind ourselves, friends, I, I hope that you say this and pray this and memorize this. I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace shown towards me was not in vain. In other words, I didn't live as if God's grace was meaningless. His grace towards me did not have no effect. It did something to me. It's doing something in me. So I want to work. I want to work hard. I want to strive for holiness. I want to strive for godliness. I want to strive to be more like Christ. Yet I know it's not I. I'm not great in this. It is by the grace of God. It's because of the grace of God that is within me. That's a peculiar dynamic, friends, but I, we, need to, we need to have this mentality that, that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. God's grace shown towards us causes us to live holy lives. But even as we take steps in holiness, we know it's, it's because of God's grace. We want to be humble and dependent every step of the way in our growth towards holiness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I don't know why in this story you chose this particular man. This man who had been here 38 years. But Jesus, you knew him, you saw him, you moved in compassion towards him and you healed him. Father, I don't know why you chose me or anyone else in this room. Certainly we don't deserve it. Certainly we were not worthy or smart, smarter than others to make this right decision. We are saved by your sheer act of grace alone. Father, I pray that you would help us see that, that the calling that you've called us towards, this grace that you've shown us, is, is not to just leave us in our place. That we have been called to a holy God to grow in holiness. That you have called us holy to become who we are. Father, help us to... to know that discipline and obedience and accountability and seeking to work is not legalism. It's what you've called us to do, but help us to get that right, that we are saved by grace for holiness. Father, may we be a church that seeks to grow in holiness, that seeks to be marked by life and joy and godliness. Help us to be disciplined in our, in our pursuit of godliness. 
Father, I pray that we would be amazed as we see you in the story seeking and saving, healing and speaking. May you show us more of your glory so that we want to uh, love you. We see your glory, and, and by beholding you, we become more and more like you. Spirit, I ask that you'd give us these eyes to see you in this way. Change us, Father, to want to obey you and follow you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.